Welcome back to the Stable Moments Podcast. This month, I have an amazing guest for you on Hilla Quijada Banks. She is an American award-winning author of the Black Foster Youth Handbook. She grew up in foster care herself, and she experienced being transient, like moving all over the country, not being settled. Um, And that wasn't just in her foster homes. That was actually in her family of origin. They moved all around. And it wasn't until she was a bit older that foster care kind of caught up with her and she became a child in foster care. She tells us about her experience of what it's like to not only be in foster care, but to be a child of color in foster care. And she also talks about how she has been able to uh, use her platform and her story to share that lived experience with legislators, improve policy. She's written this book, which I think would be amazing for Stable Moments locations and other people that are serving foster youth to have this book on hand so that the foster youth can can read it and actually not feel so isolated, understand, you know, what they're going through, how to access and acknowledge their own pain, trauma, and bring that through hopefully to some healing. Okay, she's she's just incredible. I'm excited for you all to meet her. She is a holistic health coach and she heals trauma now. So she's using her experience to help others. I will let her do the rest of the introduction and uh, I'll roll that intro and you can hear from Angela. I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community, and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much, Angela, for joining us on the Stable Moments Podcast. It's so great to have you. I actually, I found you on LinkedIn and on the Stable Moments Podcast. We love to have a whole variety of people that touch the foster care community and know about the foster care crisis or the experience and can let the community at large know about all the different perspectives that there are on the foster care system, because there's a lot of different perspectives out there. So I would love to just start with having you introduce yourself. And I know that you are a former foster youth. So if you could just kind of start us back at the beginning and let us know a little bit about, you know, your origin story. Okay. Um, didn't know we were going to go all the way back, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm originally from Anaheim, California. I think some of my best earliest memories is like cooking with my grandmother, um, helping her with her tomato garden, playing with butterflies in this big field in our neighborhood. And we lived across the street from Disneyland. So the entire community would like at nine o'clock come outside um, and wait for the fireworks that happens every night. Oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> Be magical. It was, it was awesome. Um, and I think you know, as I continue to get older and acknowledging other surroundings about like my mom's relationship with her boyfriend, um, which then became husband, it was just very rocky, very trying to use another word other than the one that's in my mind, but uh, (laughs) very, (laughs) uh, just very um, unstable, I guess. And it was hard to, as a kid, acknowledge this feeling of warmth and home with my grandmother and with my grandfather, which I now understand is like true love. And, you know, I can conceptualize and put words to it, but knowing like I felt safe, that I felt like I belonged. And then when I was alone, like with my mom and and my uh, stepdad, 
who I just call my dad now. It was always confusing. It was always, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And so some of those shifts look like my mom moving in with my dad and us not having an actual apartment or other place to stay. When I mean moving in, it was moving into a hotel or we slept at a park. Um, It was just very unstable situations like that for a kid to just try to piece together. Like, why are we sleeping at the park? Why are we, you know, all these different things. So as I ended up getting more siblings, I'm now the oldest of um, five, oldest of six. I don't know how to word that, but there's six of us and I'm the oldest. (laughs) And um, as one and the other started to pop out, things became even more unstable because um, I think there was less money to go around. And so it just became even more exacerbated situations than with just me and going back and forth with my grandparents. It was then me and my siblings and my mom staying with my grandparents. And then my mom and my dad having, you know, full on arguments and then it becoming physical and it just kind of escalating more and more. And so that became my reality more so than these beautiful, loving moments with my grandmother and my grandfather. My grandfather also at that time was doing a lot of like showing me how to read and Mm -hmm. um, gave me books on arithmetic and books on um, like table etiquette. And um, so it was such a split reality. I felt like where I was having this like, okay, this is making sense. This feels good. And then like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't feel good. I don't know what the words are, you know, five, six, seven years old. And then we moved to Georgia. And that was like, I think the first time I was outside of California. I had a huge culture shock because um, I grew up around previously in Anaheim, California. There's all kinds of folks, you know, you don't know what you get. Um, I myself am African-American, Mexican and indigenous. And um, that's kind of what is the mix in California, um, especially Anaheim, and then going to Georgia, and it's just uh, African-American and Caucasian, right, and that's basically, (laughs) that's basically it, and it was a huge culture shock for me, because I was used to, I guess, a certain culture around that, and acceptance, and Mm -hmm. people were just kind of, the kids were all confused about, like, who I was, like, where I came from, why was my hair a certain way, And so it was, you know, trying to find some kind of belonging and connection there. That's kind of, I think, in the beginning where that started. Unfortunately, we ended up moving over 20 other times back and forth from California to North Carolina, to Washington State, to Texas, to Nevada, to like so many different places. Yeah. And then uh, I ended up in North Carolina with all that high mobility and, um, just being exhausted of like what life really meant for me at that time had been my parents at the time had isolated my siblings and myself from any other family at multiple periods of time throughout that 16 years of my life. So it was difficult to try to navigate. I think just my sense of self, my sense of home, my sense of connection, my sense of culture, especially if you're the new kid all the time, you always try to, I think in the beginning, before the 15th to 20th time, but probably in the beginning, you know, for me, I was really trying to find the best way to connect with my peers. And then after a while, I think I just gave up and I was like, there's no point in connecting Mm -hmm. because we're going to leave again at some point. Mm -hmm. So eventually ended up in foster care at 16 with my siblings, ended up in kinship care at first. Mm -hmm. So with my uncle, my aunt, Sadly, that did not work out for a lot of reasons. My siblings and I ended up getting separated by gender. Mm. And then from there, I think mentally we all had some kind of something to grasp onto, but it was also a new trauma being separated Mm -hmm. from ourselves, from our uh, our siblings and our entire family, and then trying to navigate that. And so eventually uh, at 19, I was given a seven day notice via email to gather my belongings and leave the foster care placement I was in. I was in college at the time. So not really having any 
strong adult supports. Mm -hmm. It was also difficult to try to navigate that. And I uh, was homeless for a little while. And then I ended up figuring some things out. And eventually I ended up connecting with my dad. This is like a super fast forward version, I know. Yeah, I I get it. Yeah, I ended up with my dad. And um, I thought that that period of time, I was um, 20 at the time. And I thought that it was going to be or 21. I thought it was going to be a good time to go back to school. So I ended up transferring. And then I didn't anticipate what ended up happening in the next few months, which was that he ended up getting diagnosed with uh, kidney failure. And so I was hoping that this was the time that I would have a break (laughs) from life. And that, you know, everything was going to work out. Even if I just had like one adult that I knew believed in me and and cared about me and um, would support me. And he got really sick, like two two months into the semester, Um, he lost his job and his health started to fail. He's still alive to this day. um, But at that particular time, the doctors didn't know if he was going to make it. And that's what they communicated to me. As someone that at that point had no uh, adult supports other than him, it sent me into a very dark depression. I ended up just traveling. I went to Houston, Texas. I took a job in Arizona for like a couple of months, 90 degree weather, um, (laughs) 12 hour days of knocking on different doors, trying to get people to vote. Wow. And then I ended up in Japan of all places and um, ended up meeting the love of my life and got engaged, got married the next year. um, And 2020 moving to San Diego. (laughs) Yeah. And then the pandemic. Right. And um, I wrote the Black Foster Youth Handbook and uh, just a lot of things in between. So much in between as far as how I was able to process it and Mm -hmm. just try to um, understand the systemic barriers, the cultural barriers. I had so many questions as a kid. And, you know, as I got older, just I didn't understand how people didn't know what the answers were. And um, it made me very frustrated, you know, because you go through so many different experiences and you start to ask that question, you know, why did this specifically happen to me? What did I do to deserve all these, you know, horrible things that happens? And after talking with so many youth and adults that experience foster care in in Washington, D.C. and across the country, because simultaneously, although I was experiencing all these different things, I was still advocating and speaking up, um, talking to different congressional members and legislators starting at like 17. So I got to meet a lot of other youth that had the experience of foster care and recognizing that I wasn't alone in that. um, Although that brought me some solace, it also brought me a lot of sadness that Mm -hmm. so many people are going through the same experiences. And what did that really mean? as a system? What did that really mean as a community? What did that really mean about our human experience? Mm -hmm. And was there anyone that was able to heal and move forward after these crazy experiences? Like, was there anyone around available that I could actually see? When you ask people, right, like, how are you doing? Or how's it going? They're not going to tell you their whole life story no one's going to just vomit their whole life story Mm -hmm. but um I think there's like this perception that like when you're going through those things or if you haven't processed it that no one could understand no one gets it and um that you're alone in it but I think for me having those spaces empowering spaces whether that was through policy or um just community work being able to talk with other people who had experienced it and also people that understood to the degree that they could about how they wanted to support and and help this particular population, people impacted by foster care. Yeah. Brought me a lot of hope and a lot of healing as far as that there was a specific narrative and I had, and I had multiple and I probably still have a few, but that no one really cares, Mm -hmm. you know, no one genuinely cares about my life or cares about who I am as a person as a human. Mm-hmm. And um, I think those types of narratives can be very, not only harmful to other people because you push people away, but um, can really be harmful to your internal 
dialogue your internal self so yeah I would say um to wrap it all up that's <laughs> that was kind of in a nutshell different things that I experienced yeah yeah that's it's huge it's a lot so you talked about legislative advocacy um what pushed you in that direction of advocacy and like what was your initial or is your is still your like the thing you know the thing that you're saying needs change or um, you're trying to get legislators to understand yeah so I think um I was mute when I was 16 and so it was this journey of uh, rediscovering my voice um, and reconnecting to the value of my voice, the value of my story, the value of what I say. I had just kind of been in a space where I'd always felt like it didn't matter. It didn't matter what I said, didn't matter what I thought, didn't matter anything because everything kind of resulted the same way. I would be moving or connection would be lost or, you know, so it was like this internalized thing. And eventually I ended up um, through poetry and spoken word, slowly being able to express myself. And so I was actually connected to this program called um, the National Foster Youth um, Shadow Day Program um, in 2016. And it's a week-long program where youth, like I think 100 youth out of the country are selected. Um, and you're able to fly down to Washington, D.C., get all of this training about how to share your story, how to talk to a legislator, and really highlighting what are the, the top concerns specifically in your state, and looking at your own story, looking at other stories, being able to articulate that to congressional members for legislative change. So that was my first in. And that really changed my perspective because, again, I had that narrative of like, no one really cares and definitely not legislators or congressional members. But that wasn't true. Um, there was, <laughs> I was connected with someone who um, was the opposite of my political beliefs at that time. And I thought to myself, this person definitely doesn't want to hear from me. This person definitely doesn't care. And, you know, I had the conversation with them anyways and their staffers. I was able to shadow him the entire day. And I realized that that wasn't true. He genuinely did care. But the thing is, he didn't know anything about foster care, just like so many other people mm -hmm. don't know anything about foster care. It's a completely different, like, siloed experience that unless, you know, unless you're in it or you know someone that's in it or something, you just don't. No, um, you might hear about it in a movie or something, but other than that, <laughs> yeah. um, you don't really look much into it. So mm -hmm. that brought me a lot of clarity as far as how to have that type of a conversation with someone that had no idea. Um, and, you know, it opened my heart too. I'm like, okay, they don't, it's not that they don't care. They just don't know. They just don't get it. Mm -hmm. They don't understand. So that was a huge pers uh, perspective shift for me. I ended up joining the National Policy Council, which is a council in based in Washington, D.C. that I think selects, I'm not sure about now, but at the time, I think it was like 12 um, people that have lived experience, but also policy background. Um, I was a political science major in, in college, so um, I had done a lot of that specific focus. At that time, my focus was highlighting the cultural um, connections piece with youth in foster care, as well as maintaining um, familial relationships. Because um, thinking about my personal experience with my siblings, we were the closest um, of all the family. I also had my grandmother who, so shout out to my grandma because I just saw her she just turned 80 um, in December, <laughs> but yeah. And you know, that was a very important person for me to stay connected to maybe not my parents, but I still had other family members that I was yeah. genuinely wanted to connect with. And it was difficult because of all these other different stipulations. So having, you know, this sibling relationship and then it being used as like 
um, oh, your brother didn't uh, wash the dishes this week, or your brother, your sister didn't um, make good grades this period. And that means you guys can't talk on the phone. You guys can't see each other, Mm. you know, for months on end. And, you know, I think some people can't really conceptualize what that really means. I mean, you hear and you're like, yeah, that sounds horrible, but like, this is your, your family. That's someone you're really connected with. You feel safe with, you know, them, they know you, they have your back. And that even that little piece of identity, right? Like me being an older sister, that's something, the last thing at this point, because everything else is stripped away that I have pride in. And now I can't show up to, you know, birthday parties. I'm, I'm not there to know about my brother's first crush, you know, or if they have a bully, I, there's no, I can't step in. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they're safe. I don't know if they're going through whatever they're going through. And I know they're going through something because I'm going through something too. Yeah. Um, from the circumstances of the situation. So that was something that I highlighted in my uh, political advocacy. And that next year, I ended up coming back to the um, Shadow Day program as a pod leader. And I was the first cohort of pod leaders that were of lived experience. And so um, I supported the organization at the time to one, vet out, I don't even know how many applications we had, but to find those 100 people, uh, 100 youth and um, travel arrangements, all the things. And then we actually, as pod leaders, I think it was like seven or eight of us were able to conduct our own workshops and create our own workshops. So being able to lead um, for the youth about cultural connection and awareness and those different aspects that if you're in survival mode, that's kind of like a secondary thing that you're thinking about, or maybe even tertiary, but you know, that's a basic need, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a basic need to, to feel like you belong, to feel connected to yourself and your culture. Um, it's not just food, water, and shelter and checking boxes, you know. From there, I also was connecting with a lot of legislators locally in North Carolina. I was connecting with um, Senator, not Karen Bass. I did connect with Senator Karen Bass in LA, but um, in North Carolina, it was Tamara Beringer. She wanted support on this bill that ended up getting passed. And it was around just getting perspective from a youth that had experiences in foster care and also was in uh, legislative aspects. So I was calling and really being connected with uh, legislators and congressional members in the area, um, just kind of trying to make them aware of that foster care really was an issue um, at the way that it was going currently to start listening to people with lived experience in the area. Those conversations were very interesting, but um, (laughs) uh, successful nonetheless. And so that bill ended up getting passed. um, And I spoke at her celebration ceremony around it. And that was also very empowering because I realized that we really do have a say politically, each and every one of us. I mean, any issues that you're really focused on that you really think are important to bring about change, I think that there's a lot more that we can do politically than we understand as far as our own inner power and organizing and connecting with other people who have like-minded things and be able to call into an office or go and schedule a meeting and talking directly to the staffers or directly to a congressional member. And that does change their perspective. Recently, I think the last time they did something politically was in 2020 before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I went to Sacramento, which is the capital of um, California and talked to congressional members with this organization called California Youth Connection, shout out to CYC, but um, they held a day at the Capitol in Sacramento. We talked to uh, several different legislators about youth that are aging out because that's a huge, huge need. Um, And just like homelessness preventions, things around uh, supports and resources. That's some of my uh, political experience and the things that I focus on cultural connection, family connection, prevention of 
support. I think I, I recently did a keynote called Save the Family, the unspoken effects of family separation. Because mm. there's a there's a lot that happens when a family is touched by the foster care system that it's extremely traumatic as someone that is now um, out of the foster care system. But, you know, one of my siblings ended up getting adopted and that's also highlighted in such a positive regard that is still trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's so many, (laughs) there's so many layers to that. And I guess the guilt too, like what everybody wishes they could have done or all these things. So, um, Another topic um, with policy, I think, with foster care is also recognizing the actual outcomes of what's happening with foster care versus there's the intended outcome that everybody talks about. But then there's like the raw, real statistics based on the actions that people are taking with these intentions and the fact that it's not working that way. Um, give me an example, like, so the, give me an example of the intention versus the raw reel. Yeah, I got you. 80% of uh, the um, the prison system is made up of youth or someone that has experienced foster care. And over 70% of girls that have foster care experience are made up of sex trafficking victims. And so if we're saying that the safety and security is the number one priority and intention, how is that actually being carried out when the statistics are so high? I'm not understanding how it's 2022. It's 2022. And we're talking about the advancement of technology. We're talking about all these different things. And the statistics are over 50% in the negatives that way. And then we highlight things like 3% of you know foster youth Um, are graduating with a degree and we focus on the three percent right like oh yay the three percent and it's like what about the 97 percent why are we not focused on the 97 percent I'm really confused that doesn't that's not adding up that's not making sense I guess in my work it's really it's really frustrating when it seems that everyone's good intention right is to safety secure and security but the reality is the actions that are related to that intention are not working. Mm-hmm. So there has to be completely different actions. Otherwise, it's just insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, doing the exact same thing, getting the exact same result, if not a worse result. I don't know what the statistics were before. Maybe they were higher. Maybe they were in the 90s. Um, but I just think that it could go a whole lot better. If we recognize um, that the particular actions that are taken now are not working, things like uh, we have all these different resources for youth and they just need to go and they just need to go and actually make the choice to do it. What Mm. if they cognitively can't even make the choice to do it? Mm. We're not focusing on that specific action. We're saying like, we have, we have all these resources. We have all these organizations. We have all this support. And I've seen it myself in 2020. I started looking at all the different organizations that were around because I was like, oh my gosh, what are happening to the age, aging out population right now during the pandemic, which is something that inspired me to write my book. But talking to these, these different organizations, I recognized very quickly what the issue was that we're pretending as if the youth haven't had the trauma. We have this trauma-informed training to understand that they do, but we're not actually taking the actions as if they do. Um, It's still like, okay, I understand this person has trauma, so we'll put this, you know, in front of them. And if they decide to make that choice, then now it's on them. Right. But it's, it's a way more ingrained mentally than I think what we've really been able to accept right because it's it's pervasive if we look at those that and the statistics at this point that yeah. it's not just about give them a choice yeah yeah it reminds me there's a uh, ready for life is a organization uh, where I'm from that helps aging out of foster care youth and they really try to be more holistic and more trauma-informed and um you know, they say like adult learning or whatever might offer GED, but 
they, as soon as a kid doesn't show up or if they're, you know, late over and over again or, or whatever obstacles they might face, they just don't pass. Like it's just, you're done. And then instead of creating a winning streak for a kid um, or for a young adult, you're creating like just another time when they feel like they suck at something or they can't achieve it. Um, and so you're really just actually perpetuating this thought of like, I don't matter. I can't hack it. Um, so they really do try to make the certain accommodations to empower them to make the choices to show up. But also it's like, okay, so the service might be here, but they don't have transportation. They don't have a driver's license. There's no cars. Like, I mean, there's like a million other things. They have yeah. kids. They don't have childcare. Like they don't have homes. Like, so there, it wasn't like, you know, you have to go so upstream to really deal with root causes and the holistic care of like, do they have everything they need to even focus on a GED if that's what we're trying to do? like right. food and shelter and then the mentorship and um, somebody that cares and will show up and all of that. And it's a lot. And I think that it's so disjointed. You know, so many of our services are like, well, this place offers this thing and this place offers this thing, but somebody to keep that all straight and um, even know where to go for those resources or you have to have internet access to like even find half of those things or whatever. It's People making programs are well-intentioned, but the level to which things need to be thought through is so granular and like, you need to try it and you need to, you know, dedicate your life really to like figuring out what works. And that's why I'm so glad to hear you talk about more people caring to listen to the lived experience because you are not going to develop. I do a lot of uh, program development work and you're just not going to develop a successful program without doing it with those the program is intended to serve. So I'm so, so glad to hear you say that. And even when you're saying like, yeah, you know, we can make a difference. Our voice can make a difference. Like regardless if it's foster youth or whoever it is, I feel like a lot of people are intimidated by talking to legislators or like, they don't Absolutely. even know, you know, they're like, what? Like, I don't know what to say. Um, yeah. So I love that program that you were a part of that gave you the exposure that you were like, oh, these people aren't so scary and they're just normal people, <laughs> right? And yeah, they, yeah. they do care as long as, you know, you show up. So it is, it's like asking people with lived experience, regardless of what the lived experience is, whatever the platform is or whatever they're advocating for, empowering them, but also asking uh, people in power to yeah. come to the table and actually listen, right? Yep, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, so, so tell me about Black Foster Youth handbook what made you write it what's it all about I got married in 2019 and then I moved to San Diego and um, I was in a really interesting space where I'm now in San Diego and I'm now married and just trying to like conceptualize all these different really amazing changes and choices that I've made and just like wow I'm really happy with, with where I am but I want to give back right like I'm every time I'm in a I guess different milestone. That's my first thought is like, and how do I give back from where I am? I don't have a million dollars, but <laughs> how can I give back? And so um, at the time, just doing all the research on um, statistically and thinking about my past experiences with meeting all different youth and families. And again, statistically seeing that majority of youth in, in care are youth of color. And thinking about my personal experience, thinking about the ways that uh, systemically my family was in a way um, kind of garnered to this, you know, way of going into foster care. <sighs> I thought about how I would be able to share for my experience about um, foster care. So that was one of my ideas for 2020 was, okay, I'll write a book about foster care. And then I kind of had like nine other book ideas. And I was kind of just going back and forth about that. Like, okay, well, I don't know exactly which one I'll do. I'm just going to decide eventually or whatever. And then the pandemic happened and it all became clear <laughs> because that's all that I was thinking about. I was just thinking about families like mine 
on top of a whole global pandemic and knowing what I was experiencing and witnessing domestic violence and so many things um, in, in the home and thinking about a youth that was going through that and then taking a step further, they're getting removed from their home and they don't know what's going on and now they're in foster care. And so I thought about that particular experience and where I was mentally. And it was rough because I, I almost didn't really want to write the book because I knew it was so many layers to it mm-hmm. um, systemically. And I didn't know how exactly I wanted to write to it. And I just started thinking about my little brother who, as I said, he got adopted, but he is 14 now. He's going to be 15 this year. But at the time he was 12 and I was thinking about the things that he must be experiencing during the pandemic at that time and just so many layers. And so I was like, okay, I have to write this book. There's, there's no, like, maybe I just, I have to write it. And I also started a podcast. So soulful liberation podcast, which means liberation of self and community, freeing your mind from trauma and you know, moving on with that is freeing your body, freeing your spirit and freeing yourself financially, which I'm still on the journey to do as well. Mm-hmm. But that was, that was like the main um, focus there. It was about how do I support and share from things that I've learned the hard way. A lot of the things that I've learned the hard way with a youth that is just getting into foster care and they don't know what's going on, why it's happening, just in a very dark space. And I know exactly that space. Um, I've talked to so many youth about it, and I myself experienced it. So I know it very well. And I thought about this particular idea, though, about a handbook or a guide was given to me from God, honestly, probably like four years prior 2016 and I tried to connect with different organizations about partnering to make it happen um, but that didn't happen so in 2020 when moving to San Diego I thought this was a great time to actually just pour myself into a book and just start writing and so I did it was an extremely healing experience and it became a lot bigger than what I had imagined at the time Um, so originally it was a guide for youth in foster care to holistically heal and also for the support of adults to know how to support a youth in foster care that specifically in mind with their parental rights were terminated. So, mm-hmm. cause that was my particular situation. Mm-hmm. It's a sense of deep sadness and hopelessness because now you genuinely don't have legal parents, I was in that state of mind. And that's the way I wrote it from, but also taking into account the systemic aspect of child welfare, that it's a billion dollar industry, and that there's a lot of other economic aspects that the youth doesn't necessarily need to know about at that particular time, because that would be very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But I know that. And so how do I empower them to connect with someone in their circle, connect with their foster parents, if they're with their foster parents, their social worker, their guardian litem or CASA, and also not to blame themselves for all the different things that are happening, but to be able to see that this is not a forever situation. There's real life after this, and you can either see this as a very, you know, just keep going, move forward, um, or you can really slow down and try to see the positive aspects of it. And it's really hard, (laughs) but really challenge yourself to see some of the positives that are there, that you're still alive, that you have people around you that care about you, that you can create a life for yourself still out of all of this, that you are smart, that you are um, capable and that you're also connected, even if you don't feel like you have anybody that cares of you, about you. There's so many people that do and don't even know you um, exist. And so I think my, my intention when I was done with the book, it's broken up into four phases. So it's root, envision, ascension, and liberation. And the intention is for the youth to be able to reflect on their past experiences while they're in foster care and really be able to ground themselves where they are 
yes, it's been high mobility and very traumatic and just, you know, horrific, really. It's been hell. But also, it doesn't have to always be that way. It doesn't have to continue on from this day that you're picking up this book and you're just kind of sharing a different perspective, maybe inspiring some hope, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a sliver. (laughs) And sometimes a sliver is all you need Mm -hmm. to for it to grow. Those are kind of uh, intentions that I had uh, after finishing the book. And there's also fostering success tips for people that are supporting the youth in order to see from that a different perspective as well, right? And we're talking about intention versus impact. So really merging those two together. So how do you be well-intentioned and also have a positive impact on a youth, right? So mm-hmm. thinking about all the different conversations I've had with foster parents and countless conversations I've had with youth and social workers, I just spoke from that lens um, and giving some tangible ways that youth can journal in this uh, handbook, but also be able to reflect and have those open conversations that are sparked from in the book. Nice. Well, that sounds awesome. I feel like uh, it could be a really good resource for our Stable Moments locations where they have foster youth, uh, many who have experienced TPR um, or are adopted or for mentors and program directors to see those fostering success tips. As far as the youth, is there like a primary audience, like age that you think is most appropriate for your book? I would say 13 plus. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Because I I talk about um, things that I think, uh, well, I don't know. It's I'm kind of biased, I think, too, because a lot of times I, I would hear people say like, what are the, you know, some of these concepts, I'm not sure if my, I don't know, 10 year old would be able to grasp for other things. And I don't know, may, maybe it was just me or some of the peers that I was around, but at eight and nine, I was able to grasp a lot of, a lot of concepts <laughs> about my identity and, and who I was. That didn't mean that I wanted everybody to know that I grasped those different concepts, but um I definitely understood. And I mean, I think as a, as humans, we understand things deeper as we get older in general, but it doesn't necessarily mean we can't understand it. Like, sure. Try to put words to certain situations and maybe you don't get it all the way, but to be blunt, like I, as a little kid, I didn't know that I was black, mm-hmm. but I was treated differently. And I had all these different, like, internal situations that I didn't understand, um, not able to fully love like my skin or love my hair in its natural state. Um, a lot of things that I've had to work through. I didn't have necessarily words for that. I didn't understand the systemic or cultural society identity that I was trying to take on or morph myself into. But if someone were to have explained, you know, what that really meant for me, and myself being able to then, from their explanation, you know, take that in and be like, okay, well, what do I want it to mean for me? You know, I don't have to take that whole thing, whatever, however someone decides to package it, but, you know, what does that really mean for me? What does it mean to be a woman? Mm-hmm. I also struggled with that as a kid, too, because I, I was so afraid of pregnancy. I was like, oh, my God, no, <laughs> I don't want to do this. That sounds so scary. And I was like nine. I was like, no, I would rather be a boy than be pregnant ever. And, um, you know, then my grandma, different people were able to communicate the beauty of being a woman, what that actually means. And now I feel empowered about it, you know, as a 26 year old. But certain concepts, I think not talking about it isn't actually helping um, mm-hmm. the youth navigate their own sense of self or identity. Yeah, not being able to to grasp the depth of a complex topic isn't the reason, you know, it's not a reason to not start talking about yeah. it in simple ways and just seeing where the conversation leads. But like you said, even if there weren't words for it, it was there. I mean, yeah, it's not not there. So we need to acknowledge and validate. Yeah, I um I really I like that. And I mean parents know, I mean, you can use your judgment on how far you think your kid's able to get something. It's too, it's difficult to talk about age with kids with developmental trauma anyway, because yeah, I mean, kids are just different 
ages developmentally than their chronological age. So it's hard to say, oh, this is good for 13 year olds. And then you know, my 18 year old that is still kind of 11. Right. So it's all things to think about, but yeah, start the conversation. I, I really like that. So for your podcast, um, I definitely am going to put the the handbook as a resource out there, especially for our stable moments locations and to think about having that as part of maybe their lending library um, to talk to the parents that come to their facilities about that. Um, the podcast, who's your primary audience for your um, Soulful Liberation podcast? My pr- primary audience are um, other transition age youth. So- okay. 16 to however honestly it's people mainly people that have had the experience of foster care um and maybe now you're a child welfare professional or maybe now you're an entrepreneur or you're currently in it but whatever stage of life you're in you've had uh some experience in foster care I do know, though, that we have CASAs that are listening in. We have guardian lineups, social workers, uh, foster parents. Yeah, different constituents in the child welfare system. Yeah, I mean, it's a peek in, right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that, hey, you need to be where people are, right? So if you, you can experience directly from people with lived experience, you should. So um, so that's good to know that even if you're listening here and you don't have experience with uh, the foster care system, but you want to know more about it. I think listening in is a, a beautiful way to be able to do that, um, on your own, in your own car or whatever, on your own time. <laughs> yes. uh, well, so just, to, I'm definitely linking to all of these. Um, and just to wrap up, if you were to, if there were mentors, um, or people that want to be mentors listening to this or program directors or, or and they're, coming into contact or just interested in supporting uh, youth in foster care, what would your biggest like advice for them be? Because a lot of times they're really nervous. Yeah, I would say acknowledge that you probably have no idea what's going on (laughs) and not to overwhelm you in the sense of like, I have no idea. There's nowhere to start, but, um, start having those conversations, Um, you know, connect with your local organization that's serving youth um, that are experiencing foster care, volunteer, you know, volunteer there, ask questions to other people that um, have been volunteering, volunteering there. I would also say research other uh, books from people that have lived experience. You'll get a lot more insight as to the psyche, right? The mental um, things that are going on. So that way you don't take it personally. I'd also say broaden your community and your support system. This type of thing is kind of like youth. The best way I can explain it is youth are sometimes very stuck in this deep, dark hole mentally. And you are essentially saying that you're going to go walk in there into that dark hole with them Mm. and um you can get lost in there you can easily get you know that post-secondary trauma you can get all all of that stuff because they're so deep and wrapped up into their own stuff and that it's not you're not enough it's not all these other different things Um, So it's important that you have your own support. So that way, if it gets too much, that there's people that can pull you out um, because they might not be ready to leave, even as much as it makes more sense for them to not be in that dark hole, you know, not to be cold and shivering. You're able to make that logical and clear decision and understanding, but that might be all that they know. And so that is what they will choose. And those are the really true hard decisions to be able to have to, you know, sit with and recognize and not uh, take it so personally and take it on. And, you know, I'm going to save this youth because at the end of the day, that's a human. And yes, they have their own choices, but they may also not be in the right mind to conceptualize choice. And so you have to have your own support system, be very connected so that way 
you're able to one, identify the true issues, but be able to also effectively support if that's something that you really want to do. That's not all the youth, but I have in my experience recognized that it is many because it is a very hard decision when you recognize you have a choice as someone has experienced that to choose something different because it's scary. And although it's, you know, the same hell that you recognize this entire time and you recognize it is hell, it's still familiar. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of times what you choose. And I, I would say that probably be my biggest thing is um, learn from people that have lived experience so you can start to understand that and don't take it personally. Have your community strong, a strong support system, maybe even get a therapist. So that way you're not falling in there with them because that's, that's also not going to be any help um, mm-hmm. to you and in your family and your life and, or to that youth. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's really helpful. And I know that yeah, remaining in the stable moments model, we definitely train our mentors to uh, understand that they're not fixers and that we are just there to be there, to show up, to show a kid that they matter enough for us to show up for an hour, but there's no like, and then you'll do this. It's like, no, you'll just be there. And sometimes that means sitting through the suck. It's just, it's like, you don't really build trust with people unless they're willing to like, show up where you are. Right. Yeah. And then maybe just stay where, stay where you are. I mean, yeah, there's no, um, that we, we talk about dropping the agenda and that the goal isn't making some market increase. It's like developing a relationship. That's it. Showing a kid they matter. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Well, I will link to all of your stuff and, um, Thank you so much for joining us. I will tag you on social media so people can follow you there as well. And I'll add that all to the show notes. This has been so amazing. I love that you're doing your advocacy work. I love obviously that you have written some amazing resources for people and that you, every time you reach a milestone, you go, how do I give back? Because it's helping, you know, and, um, the, uh, the political stuff is really cool um, because I think it's overwhelming for pretty much most of the population. Um, so yeah. getting, more people, <laughs> getting more people empowered and willing to speak up, it's what we need, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, you too. All right, bye-bye.